six slippery seals slithered silently ashore. Six slippery seals slithered silently ashore. Hello, Future Marshall here. Last week, Stan and I spoke about critiques, why to give them, how to give them, and we ran out of time, so this is part two. If you haven't heard part one, go check that out first. I will interject as Future Marshall, so don't be alarmed if my beard suddenly becomes more glorious. Let's pick up where we left off. Well, that was my everything for how to respond to critiques. The only thing I have left is how do I get useful feedback on my work? You mind if I start with this one? Yeah. The topic is how do I get useful feedback on my work? I said, yeah, I do mind. Oh, you do mind. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's right. You're the one who wants to tussle and I'm the one who <laughs> wants to be a feral fellow traveler. Yeah. And I even propose that we should argue more. <laughs> yeah, you're the one that wanted me to argue. Man, I, I'm the wimp. Okay, let's start over. The question is, how do I get useful feedback on my work? Yes. The answer is ask for it, but I want to be more specific. I do something when I start a critique in a college classroom where we have an assignment, but there may be some subjective criteria. I usually start with the question, how do you feel about this? I ask, how do you feel about it? as an act of respect so that I can know whether you're completely happy with it. And if you're completely happy with it, I might pick one thing out or whether you're really down on it. And then I might pick one thing out. One will be to show you that it could use work on this. The other would be to show you that it's got some good things going on it. But it's a way of taking an emotional temperature about your feeling about this work. Now, when I once I've asked that, I might ask, what do you hope for it? And what do you not like about it? Now, I've gone from a general question to a more specific question. What is your motive? What do you want this to be? What's your objective? What do you hope for it positively? And what's getting in the way? And going back to the doctor analogy, these are ways to say, how do you feel? How do you feel in the morning? Do you feel different at night? How do you feel after a meal? How do you feel after you've uh, had that, that conversation with somebody? And where are their problems? When are you not feeling good? And that helps me to get very specific about how I can help. That is my approach to a student who's coming in wanting feedback on work that I didn't assign to them. They just want feedback on their work. Those are probing questions. Now, the way, to, the way I do it when there's an assignment is we go back to what were the criteria for the assignment. It was to do a stick figure skeleton of these animals and just keep them sticks where they don't have any three-dimensionality, but we're going to foreshorten some of those sticks. Now, we look at that assignment, then look at the work and say, did you do that? And if a student didn't do that, they just did contour drawings of animals and figured this is good enough. Then we say, yeah, you didn't do the assignment and I'm not going to really be able to help you here with what we're trying to do. Uh, the way you get good feedback is to ask questions and the more specific the questions are, the more likely the person can help you. And if there was an assignment where the questions for the student were very specific, 
then we've already got a template of how the teacher can help you. And if there is not an assignment where it's just say, I'd like feedback, general feedback on my work, a teacher would be wise, I think, to ask, what do you hope to do with it? What do you feel uncomfortable with? And now we can see if we can help steer you toward what you hope for and away from the things that you're not happy with. If you have a good teacher, they will, they will ask you those follow-up questions and get that information out of you. Uh, but you can't depend on that. If you're going into an online community, a forum, um, you're just seeking feedback and you, and you post something without really saying anything. I see this very often. More, more, most critique requests on like Facebook groups and stuff come in and they say, uh, feedback, welcome. <laughs> you now, they say something very obvious like, did this figure drawing, oh, I'd like some advice. What do you guys see wrong with it? Um, like that doesn't really help very much to give you a good critique. So, again, a good mentor, someone who knows how to get, give critique, good give, give good critiques will ask the follow-up questions, get more information, but it will be helpful for you. It's in your favor to just provide that information up front. Yes. Make it easy to help you. Help me help you. <laughs> Yes. Charlie, go ahead. Go ahead. Show the clip. I know. Help me. <laughs> okay. Now that that's over with. It's in your favor to, to make it easy to help you. Um, one thing I've said repeatedly is take good photos of your drawing so that people can see what's wrong with it. Um, good lighting, straight down, not from an angle. That's obvious. But also provide context. What were you trying to achieve with this? Is there something specific you're studying? Is there a specific video that you just watched and now you're practicing the concepts from that? What are those concepts you're trying to practice? Um, provide as much information as possible to the per that, that is relevant to the person helping you. Uh, Sometimes it's even relevant to provide, if you're kind of new to the community and nobody really knows who you are, sometimes it's relevant to provide even bigger objectives like what your career goals are, <laughs> you know. Introduce yourself. Say, I'm trying to be an animator or say, I'm trying to be a car designer. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm taking this anatomy course <laughs> mm -hmm. and people will know, oh, okay, so maybe it's not important that we uh, get your proportions correct but your shape design, a little more important. Yeah, yeah. You know, whatever, whatever. The, it's important to sometimes know your big picture goals as well as the specific thing that you were doing, hoping to achieve in that lesson. What were you practicing? Yeah. Also, what were you struggling with? D did you feel like you did something wrong or not necessarily even wrong but something that was difficult for you that while you were working on this and now you want someone to maybe help you get better at that specific thing? Just giving your final result doesn't give the person context of what what you what do you need help with you you give us a figure drawing you did there's so much wrong with it 
there's there's it's I'm obvious there's going to be so much wrong with it and there's so many different paths we can go down that would be helpful for you. But if your main struggle while you were doing this specific drawing was proportions, there's no point of everyone saying your shading is wrong. Even though maybe your shading is more wrong than your proportions, let's focus on proportions because that's where your struggle was. Let's let's figure this thing out. Let's help you get over this struggle. Uh and don't say don't say what I said to Eric, my teacher once was do you see anything wrong with it? <laughs> Unless you're ready for that. Well, no, I mean assuming there's nothing wrong with it just because you don't see anything wrong with it. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I, I do get people messaging me on Instagram that will ask me, do you see anything wrong with this? But the answer is obviously yes. Now what? Do we want to get specific about something or should I give you everything that's wrong with it? Like, my response would be so long if I literally just gave you everything that's wrong with it. And the amount of energy and time that it takes for a teacher to do that, there, I, there are some teachers who just save the energy and time by just saying, it sucks, you don't know what you're doing. And that, that, okay, it wasn't any, any difficulty for them except to violate the relationship and any kind of propriety in the relationship. But I think that, uh, yeah... The place to ask for feedback is where it's meant to be. Don't ask the doctor at the uh, in, in the grocery store, hey, can you take a look at this? Yeah, true. I mean, asking on, on Instagram like in a direct message is fine. I, I think that's okay. Like the, the people that don't want to help, they just won't respond. It's very difficult for me. I, I can go, I can look through your work, I can try to figure out what, what's the best possible advice here, but it's going to take me a long time. That's right. You're more likely to get a response from me if you make it easier for me to help you. Have a specific question. Tell me what you're struggling with. Don't give me a figure drawing and just like be like, okay, here you go. Help me. <laughs> because the correct thing for, for me to do now is ask you follow-up questions, which takes me time. And if you're contacting busy people for help and it's pretty obvious from the first message you send that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be an uphill battle to help you, um, you know. And I'm, if I'm swamped right now with episodes and with, with all sorts of projects I'm working on, there's a pretty good chance I'm, not just, I'm just not going to respond to you. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand, Stan. I have never in my life said no more often, I mean, just ignored more often because I have to. I can't get any work done with all of the requests that are coming in for can you give me feedback on my work. I just can't do it. I think that same advice applies to even a, to a community as well. People are just more likely to help you if it's easier to help you. So, set yourself up. The question is, how do I get useful feedback on my work? Well, first of all, make it easy to get feedback on your work. Yes. So, another example uh, of information you can provide is, you know, how long have you been practicing uh, this form of art? You know, how much experience do you have is, is relevant. Yes, if a person is brand new, I'm going to take more time to explain some simple terms, to clarify, to give a lay of the land. And if a person is used to this, I may start with the assumption that you already know these terms, you're already familiar. The questions I get that this information would be most relevant though are things like, um, man, I'm really struggling with this and this. 
what should I do? It's like, yeah, okay, you're being very specific with what you're struggling with. Um, but if you tell me you've been doing it for two days, my answer to you will be just do more of it. You, you haven't done it. You're struggling with it because you haven't done it yet. <laughs> but if you tell me I've been doing this for three weeks, four weeks, five months, I'm going to say, okay, if you're really struggling after doing this for th that long, if you're still struggling with it, I really want to see a bunch of your examples. I want to now start identifying where the common mistakes are. Send me some more images so I can see some common problems. More blood samples. It's very different based on how long you've actually been doing it. Uh, a lot of students say they struggle and they just can't get it right after a very short amount of time. And they get discouraged because it's not correct right away. And, you know, the, the response from me isn't to, to try to tell them how to do it. It's to try to just encourage them to have patience. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a better lesson to learn in that situation. That's right. That's a big lesson. That's a, that's a yeah. long-term lesson. Yeah. So, that's a situation where just providing how long you've been practicing is really important. Um, and by the way, all of these examples of what information to provide to people, you don't have to provide all of it. Just provide what you feel is relevant for the person helping you. Um, it'd be really weird if every request for feedback is just this long essay about everyone's life story. That, that would be wrong. Don't, don't do that either. That makes it actually more difficult to help you because this person has to wrong, read your life story in order to even begin giving you feedback. So, Pick and choose what you provide, what information you provide based on what you think is useful. Uh, the last thing is, uh, you know, maybe, maybe give uh, some examples of artists whose style you admire, someone who you're striving to be, to be like, who are your uh, art parents. That, that's very informing of, yeah. you know, of, of where you want to be, of your goals. It's very specific and it could be really helpful. That's one of the most valuable ones I know because that turns every potentially negative criticism into a positive hope that look at the one we admire so much and look at what they're doing. Now, let's look back at yours. Yours isn't there yet. And why? Look at this awesome thing they do. Can we quantify it? Can we understand it? Now, let's back at yours. Look, there's an opportunity to do it there. Mm. And so, you've got a grown-up who you want to, you want your work to be like their work. That is a wonderful way, not just, and I know in the early stages, obviously, but even for people who've been at it a while and they want to change their style and they want to adjust, to go to the person that's going to help them adjust. Always growing and using touchstones to do it. That's a great way to critique. Yeah. Put it up against the standard. The standard being subjective, but still. Just because it's subjective doesn't mean it isn't real. We admire this artist, their work is real, and it's tangible. Well, Marshall, I've come to the end of my list. Okay. I did a lot of critique this summer, alone and in concert with Vance Kovacs. We critiqued a lot of people's work. Sometimes it went on for three and a half hours in one night. So, how many people? Three and a half hours to like a group of people? Or? Uh, to, yeah, where we're taking people individually so that it would be three and a half hours and go through everybody's work. 
How many people were? 30 people. 30 people yeah. in three hours, so like 10 people an hour? Yes. Yeah, sometimes we'd be very fast about it. Okay. Sometimes ants would do a demo to show something. So, we're trying to tailor okay. it for each one. Wasn't that, wasn't that great a way to do it? Uh, it was too much, but we came up with a good way to do cold reads, which is four categories in this order. The first is objective descriptions. Things like it's flat, not rendered. It's form dominant. It has gradations that don't define form. It's thickly outlined. Technical descriptions that if the student doesn't understand, they will in the coming moments. These are objective descriptions of the work. The second thing is, what do you want? What is your inclination? What do you hope for? And, and to ask that as a question. Uh, or do you have any concerns about your work? Anything that you're not doing here that you wish you were doing? So, we move from objective to subjective. And then the next thing is, where are you headed with this? What's your path to mastery? Who are your favorite artists? What are you trying to do that we can look at at a concrete example? And then, my gut feeling. Trash it if it doesn't help you. But here's what I think about what you could do with your work. Now, those four categories are giving us a template for when it's not a specific assignment. Vance and I are going to do this again in February uh, with a smaller group. So, if Draftsman listeners want in on it, or just to eavesdrop, the information is at martialart.com slash art lessons. That's critique with me and Vance Kovacs. Yeah. Okay, cool. Now, I want to tell you one of the main things that I've learned that has changed my teaching over a lot of years, and it has to do with critiques. When I was first teaching, the assignments were peripheral. It was all about teach them give them information, feed them, and then let them work out how they'll exercise. And over the decades, I've seen how students are more hungry, not just for food, but for structure. And that the assignments are very important. And I resisted that for a long time because I thought you can make up your own assignments. I've seen my best students make up their own assignments. How come you can't be make up your own assignments? You're supposed to be creative. Yeah. Make up your own assignments. But I've started to see that from my point of view, the assignments are a field of creativity. I'm coming to the point where I love designing a series of sign assignments in an order that I think is a conspiracy of love for the students. That if you will do these assignments in these order, you're going to get in this order, you're going to get better at this, whether you know it or not. I always sensed that Nicolaides had a lot of that in him because he was so do these assignments and you'll learn. Don't you don't even listen to me except to just do these assignments. Well, I'm starting to see that. Well, nowhere was this more obvious than in composition because unlike perspective and anatomy, well, you have an yeah. objective job to turn this into stick figures and make them the right proportion considering where they're foreshortened and where they're not, and make sure everything's correct. That can be critiqued very clearly. When it comes to critiquing compositions, you get put into subjective territory so quickly. But I've been working for several years on objective composition exercises, and they're the ones we talked about in that composition episode. They are massing the lights and darks and keeping them to designated values that have a number on them. They are being aware of it as a set of puzzle pieces that interrelate. They are looking at them for the balance, the balance of left to right, the balance of foreground to background, 
the balance, uh, the principle of dominance, principle of contrast, if they're all curved and then you've got one straight, that's pretty clear that you are learning something about contrast. And when we did that composition episode, Stan, I got more emails than I've ever gotten say, when can I study composition with you? And the answer <laughs> is you can't right now because I am overbooked. But in uh, early 2021, here's what I'm going to do. A composition class that is not about me teaching composition. I'll do a little. It is going to be a 12-week course of assignments and I think we're going to call it a boot camp again. You're going to lead them to getting better at it. With specific assignments. Yeah. No, I, that, that's so important because knowing information is very different from being able to put it into practice. Yes. It's very different. Um, when, I, there were, when I was teaching anatomy at Watts, this was when I first started teaching anatomy, I knew uh, just enough about anatomy to be able to teach it. There were people taking my anatomy class that knew more about anatomy than I did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Actually, there was like a surgeon, I think, that was taking my class and he, he knew more about the very specific details, but he could not apply it. Mm -hmm. And I could just see, that's where I, I learned that big difference right there. I was like, man, this guy's so knowledgeable, but when he starts drawing, it just looks all wrong. Why is that? And it's literally that. It's information does not translate to better drawings. It's true. It's actually putting in the work to now be, to figure out how to put that on paper to look good. Right. Um, and I think I, I had the same problem that you just described. My early courses um, didn't have assignments. Well, I didn't. I don't have that many courses. My portrait course <laughs> didn't have any assignments. Mm -hmm. It was they were just YouTube videos that were you know they had some information. And then my figure drawing course gave them assignments, but they were more like literally do the thing I just did in the video. Mm -hmm. um, and then my anatomy course is a little bit deeper. It's a little bit better than that where I give them a bunch of information but the assignment is putting it into practice in a real drawing. It's not literally do what I just did. Um, but my drawing basics course which is coming up next is I'm not even calling them assignments anymore. What are you calling them? Projects. Projects. Because they're, they're a much bigger part of the course now. Um, I provide little, less information per lesson and more projects along the way to practice that information. Yeah. To make sure that you understand this piece before you move on to the next piece rather than bombarding them with too much information and then just say, go draw something and put it into practice. Yes. So, I went through the same experience. Yeah. And this is a big move right now in the transition to online teaching through colleges. It's been around for a long time. It's called PBL, Project Based Learning. Uh, it's what I understand that uh, Gobelins, Gobelins, uh, that, that school is that you go in there and you work on a project and you learn how to play different roles in the project and it's an efficient way to learn because you've got to learn in the real world doing it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about project-based learning. But then some of yeah. these projects, some of these projects do end up being pretty much what we've always called assignments. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you are going to do a whole bunch of thumbnails at a certain amount of time, and you're going to turn them into these puzzle pieces, and you are going to do a whole bunch of charting pathway pathways through to see this kind of thing. But I have never been more excited about designing assignments to see if they can make the students' time this week as well invested as possible and that we don't work in class. It's going to be the coach saying, go out, do these drills, videotape them. Let's take a look at how you did and we'll give you feedback. Now, here's another set of drills to help you on the next one. Or the, uh, the editor of the newspaper talking to the journalists saying, go out and get those stories and let's come back here and let's, uh, let's hear what you've got. And let's hear how you got a great story. How did you get that story? How did you get in there to get that interview? It's going to be very much the we meet once a week to then be charged to go out and do the projects. So the critiques then have specific criteria. There doesn't have to be a lot of time spent on them because the time is spent on doing them and then seeing did they come up to a level. If they did, great. Now we're going to move it to another level. Yeah. And I, I want to see how this goes so that I can keep adjusting, but I want to see how it goes by just making the class built more around the projects than around the teacher's lectures. My Drawing Basics course has projects with which have a little bit more flexibility in what they do with it, but I also have uh, exercises and warm-ups. Yeah. Which are more, you know, very specific, like fill a page with lines or whatever, you know, something yeah. like that. Uh, warm-ups are very quick. Something you could do for the first five minutes when, as before your session, just warm up your hand. That actually helps you improve. Yeah. Build your dexterity, things like that. And then exercises are things that you'll spend a little bit longer on, but, you know, they're not projects. This is, you're very doing something very specific to, to improve as well. Um, but the projects is more like, okay, we learned something about shape. Now design some characters and put this into practice. That, that's more of a project, you know. Yeah, I, do, I know what you mean. There is a difference. Yeah. We're trying to find our terminology, but I do like the word projects because it gives that, it gives that feeling of we're going to build a tree fort. Yeah. We're going to dig a hole and see how, how deep we can get that down there and, and enough to where we could hide and make a little uh, camp in there. Th those, those things bring back the energy of what you're going to do for the summer vacation. Do you know about the six thinking hats? Mm -mm. Edward de Bono wrote a book that I read called Lateral Thinking. He also wrote another book that I didn't read, but it's about the six thinking hats. Each hat is a different mode of thinking. For example, the blue hat is the hat I put on a lot. Let's get the overview of this. What's the order we're going to go in? It's thinking about how we're going to talk about this. The white hat is the neutral objective hat. It says, let's just look at the facts here. The red hat is the emotional subjective response. Here's my gut impulse. There's also a yellow hat, the optimist's hat. The black hat is what could go wrong? What are the pitfalls? How might we waste our time on this project? What, what could get us in trouble? The green hat is let's brainstorm ideas. Let's see how many ways we could solve this. They are each a distinctly different thinking mode and each one is useful and you can change hats during your process. Well, I think that that's what we were trying to do with critique.
All right, I'd like to propose a potential order to use three of these thinking hats for self-critique. I think that if you can adopt these roles effectively, you hardly need a teacher. I like the order of blue, white, and red. Blue is big picture. What are we here for? What are we trying to do? We start with questions, and the big question is, what is this all about? That's the blue hat. White is the clear, cold, objective view, observations, not to argue, but to understand, not feelings, just facts, white hat. Red is gut feeling. What do I like? What bugs me? Not about facts. A sensation of yes or no about whether it's working or not. Marie Kondo's spark joy thing. The blue hat lays out the issues, and between the white and red hat, you have both facts and feelings. This is worth trying a few times if only to get used to switching hats. Some of us go for the hat we're most comfortable with and may be ignoring the one we need most. De Bono apparently did not come up with these all on his own. I think that they were, they were at least partly borrowed. But people in different thinking modes is, is an old way to look at it and putting on a particular hat. And, and actually in, in training, you might literally put on that hat, see yourself in a mirror and say, now I'm going to play this role. But here's what it helps with. There's no single role and there may be no single metaphor for how to critique. There's going to be different ones. And so part of the critiquer's job is to be bringing out the right information, be bringing, bringing out the right insights at the right time for this student. It's hard. It's an art form. But there is one thing for sure. We don't always play the same role in doing it. Now, that's, that's the six thinking hats. I think that that would be worth uh, taking time with for students in their creative process and also for teachers to be aware, I'm going into this mode right now, into this role. In a pen and ink critique, the blue hat is what is the project? What is the assignment? As Stan mentioned, it may go higher than just an assignment. It may be, what do you hope to do with this medium? Play with it? Use it for professional work? Research it for an art history project? It's going to be a very different critique depending on the answer to what you're setting out to do. That's the blue hat. What's the purpose here? Big overview. Now, the white hat. If your pen ripped the paper, the white hat explains that pulp papers made of wood tear apart like paper towels. Solution? You can use paper that has more glue in it, or is a better quality cotton, or just don't dig down so hard. The white hat gives you facts to help your next experience not rip the paper. And as you run into other problems, the white hat is your doctor. No need to freak out. Describe the problem. Prescribe the solution. All in a day's work. The red hat 
is a big deal in critiques because it is the emotional hat and the anguish of hearing a teacher say, no, you didn't do the assignment, can smoke out any other feeling that would help you to learn. But we've dealt with that quite a bit in previous episodes, and I've already mentioned the emotional preference for tools that you just like. People fall in love with nibs and inks and papers and pen holders. So the other thing is what I mentioned earlier, that asking a student, how do you feel about what you've done? It lets me know where to meet them. Feel horrible about it? Anything specific? Let's look at that. Feel good about it? Can you tell us what you feel good about specifically and why? The process about doing it or product, what you ended up with or both? Oh, that's where feeling really becomes useful to see what doesn't feel good and how can we avoid that bad feeling and what feels good and we can continue and pursue that more. And remember, students, teachers experience emotions going into critiques just as you do. When they look at your work, they may feel a sense of dread or excitement or curiosity. We want to navigate toward the best feeling possible by the end of a critique, and in red language, red hat language, that would be enthusiasm, passion for the project, love of what I'm going to do with this pin in the next few hours, and excuse me for not sticking around for the rest of class, but I've got to run, and I'm ready for it. I think of uh, Josh Brolin's character, Eddie Mannix, at the end of uh, Hail Caesar when he's in the confessional and the priest is trying to instruct him and uh, he doesn't have time for it because he's, he's got it. God wants us to do what's right. Yeah. Yeah, of course he does. The inner voice that tells you what's right. It comes from God, my son. Yeah, I got it. That's his way of saying that. Yeah, yeah, I got it. All right. Blue hat, it's about the project. White hat, it's about the problems, problems and solutions. Red hat, it's about how do I feel about this and how can that help me to do better and feel better? Now we move into the green hat. Big thing with the green hat, we talked about it in the composition episode. The picture as something else. The picture as a crate with stress points in it. The picture as a window with perspective play. The picture as a scale. Picture as feng shui design, as battleground, as a meal. Some of us have the green hat in our habits, and we can use it anywhere in this process. But with pen and ink, a common one is swordplay. Choreography is another one, that it's a dance on the page, and if the dance moves are coming out really difficultly, an audience can feel that, a viewer can sense this, but that could be done consistently throughout the piece to where the awkwardness is a motif in the dance. Uh, even comparisons of pen and ink technique to woodcuts and engravings, they aren't woodcuts. And they're not engravings, but they have so much in common with woodcuts and engravings that a pen and ink artist 
can learn a lot with the green hat thinking of what to compare this piece to. The white hat is math. The green hat is metaphors. That's a big part of creativity. It helps in critiques to liken the work to something that gives you ideas about it. And this is a big topic in a composition class, making comparisons. Now, in a critique, the black hat, the difficult hat, it asks the hard questions like, should I start over? And more than we want to admit, the answer is yes. J.C. Leyendecker was sort of famous for that. Oh, Baron Story has a speech about the, the waste of time of tweaking, that pruning and starting over is the most important thing you can do. That is an important black hat question. Is it worth it for me to keep working on this or should I just start over? But it may be that we can fix the piece. But this is where we go negative on the work. What are the, what are the problems here? The audience may go negative on the work. So this is where we consider it before the audience does. Then, so as not to leave on a negative note, the yellow hat leaves us on a positive note. And one last point about this yellow hat and how it relates to critiques. I think it may be easier for me as a teacher to have hope for your work when you don't. And I want to explain why. I call it the Dear Abby phenomenon. Uh, Dear Abby, the advice columnist, uh, maybe it was her sister, Ann Landers, but uh, asked about how you've had all this success as an advice columnist. How did it happen? And she said that the secret was distance, emotional distance. No emotional involvement. When you work on a piece, you know how hard it is. You get lost in the complexity of it. A colleague, a mentor, a teacher may be able to look at the work with the non-involvement of an advice columnist and help you see it freshly. Not if you're really confident that it's going well and the teacher knows that it isn't. But if you're wondering, is there hope for me? I find that when I look at students who are pouring a lot into it, especially in a composition class, because that's subjective, I'll look at it and say, hey, what if? Hey, you could. Hey, here's the set of opposites you're using. Hey, you know, this reminds me a little of, and I get excited about it. And that may not be really what you want from a teacher because you want to come up with your own ideas. But here's why I say this. An armchair quarterback has an easy job. It's hardly admirable. And yet, the person watching from a distance may have a view of the play that can help you see the potential for this play. There they all are. The yellow hat charges you to go out and shine. I hope your teachers do that. If not, prepare yourself. Come in with questions for them. If you're a teacher, make note of the hat you play most naturally, and then compose the colors to best help the students. Six hats may be too much to keep in mind for a critique, but those three hats in that order, blue hat, big picture, lay of the land, the whole map, it's a good way to start. The establishing shot 
uh, in film. In lecturing, it's here's what we'll cover. In a book, it's the table of contents. In a critique, it's what's the problem. Big view, blue. White is the view without feeling, without passion, facts, not opinions. White, no blood, just the vessels, understood like machine parts. Red is the blood of emotional response, feeling. It's what Malcolm Gladwell amplified in his book Blink when they happen in flash moments. They are the meh or the uh, or the yeah that comes out of our blood reactions. Now, that's the simplest order I can recommend. Start with the big picture, then give the facts, then run with the feelings. Some people can only criticize. Not only others, even themselves. It's like the immune system attacking the body. The black hat is valuable, but not when it overtakes the project. Some people can only praise. They may be afraid of being disliked. They can be nice, but they offer no help when we're failing, and they say, it's fine. Black hat of criticism. Got to turn it off at some points. Yellow hat of optimism. Got to turn it off at some points. Green hat of making comparisons. I'm told that when you can't turn it off, it's a kind of mental illness. Only being able to see analogies. But so is the white hat. Only being able to see facts. G.K. Chesterton said, a madman is not someone who has lost his reason, but someone who has lost everything but his reason. Each hat helps balance the other. But the worst kind of critiquer may be the one who cannot get at any of these hats other than their own opinions, which is my opinion. But I'll say one last thing about this. There's another side to my opinion. The opposite truth is that great composers, not critiquers, not teachers, great artists, are often mostly on this red hat level. They work from the gut and make their choices according to what excites them, and they discard the choices that just don't tickle them or challenge them or turn them on. The red hat is very valuable for artists in making decisions about how to compose any work of art. It's very risky for critiquers and often useless, but I think that great artists find their opinions for their work in themselves. That seems what prompts people to be artists in the first place, is that I want to make the decisions according to how I like it. Now, that was about how hats work differently for teachers and artists. Now, let's get back to critiquing. Regarding the books, you may or may not want to read them, but De Bono has written a lot about thinking and has been very influential. And this is, I think, a useful way to make the most of the various ways we can think, using the right tools for the job. Okay, back to the discussion I was having with Stan. I already kind of miss him. We're going to try to make up for it next week, but uh, here we are. Well, this has been about critiques. Oh, is that the episode? I forgot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I want to try to put this in context. In a couple of episodes ago, you mentioned about how right now there's this explosion of talent 
And there is. I, I wondered about it in the 80s and 90s and right around 2000. How come there isn't better work being done considering how many resources we have compared to the old artists? And now there is. We are in a number of revolutions. One of them, it came up in, in the, the Bridgman course. Around the early part of the 20th century in the United States, there was this, this emerging of this amazing illustration talent. And I think we're having a hundred years later, later echo of that thing. And interestingly, it's coming from some of the same teachers who were teaching in the early part of the 20th century, trying to make it new in the 21st century. And because we are a part of this revolution, in that we're providing art instruction. I really feel optimistic about this project-based learning and giving these, these, these uh, assignments that are drills and seeing what happens when you have 50 people or 100 people or several hundred people who take these seriously now that the paradigm has changed from going to art school to finding the teachers that you want for what you're trying to master online. I'm very excited yeah. about it, very optimistic about it too. Yeah. Well, I think that the there will be an even bigger explosion of talent in the next 10 years than there, were in, there was in the previous 10 years. I think so too. Yeah. I think the wave is just starting to swell. In response to the project-based learning, I, I, you, you know that there's like elementary schools and kindergartens even that are starting to do that. I know. Using that system. I know. Um, Melissa and I are looking into but you know kindergarten for cooper and one of the ones we looked into was a project-based kindergarten is that right um yeah oh that sounds now, great i melissa went and she visited i i didn't go so i didn't get to see what it was you know what they had going on but um she, she didn't pick that one she felt like it was there wasn't enough structure okay that was her going i think she said that the kids just looked confused and uh, the so I feel like the whole project-based learning thing it could be done wrong just like any system right you have to know how to use the system to its advantage because um, like for kindergarten you 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 tell kids like what do you want to do they're just gonna be like I want to go play you know you you have to give them some kind of structure to lead them to the right projects yeah. You know? I do know. <laughs> a good idea in theory doesn't necessarily translate to practice or at least yeah. it doesn't translate to practice immediately. But we, right. we know that projects-based learning works when it works and it can work very well for everybody. Yeah. Hey, this might not be relevant, but it might. I'm going to just take a stab at it and Charlie can take it out <laughs> if it isn't. There's a wonderful okay. movie from the 1950s called The Little Fugitive. The Little Fugitive was done with amateur actors by a guy who had not made a feature film or not an entertainment film before. I think he was a documentary filmmaker. Uh, and it's a wonderful little story. I recommend The Little Fugitive. On the commentary, the director who was so proud of this film because it affected film history even though it was an, uh, basically an amateur production, he got this little kid to play the main role. And the kid did not want to do the things the director wanted him to. But the director was so shrewd in how he got the footage of this kid doing these things 
by saying, okay, we, we aren't going to work on the, the movie anymore. What do you want to do? And then the kid did what he wanted to do and he followed him around with a film camera and worked those things into his film and he would have never gotten such great footage if he had tried to direct the kid. Instead, he figured, let's follow the kid and I'm going to get some stuff on film nobody else has got. And that, that would be an example yep. also of openness that you're on a project, you've got a goal for the project, it's to make a film. We're not going to do this the way the book says to do it because if we do, it's going to end up having to tussle with one of the most difficult creatures on the planet to tussle with, a kid who's got more energy than you and we're trying to get his cooperation. So, just give, give him what he wants and see what you can get out of it. I really liked that story and I really liked it an exa example of flexible teamwork. Yeah. No, that's very relevant. Did, did the director kind of guide the kid? Did he do things to make it the kid make decisions that he wanted to make? Uh, yeah, he did do he did do a little manipulation, I think. But I only listened to the commentary once, and it was about four or five years ago. And uh, I do want to listen to it again. I think it's a great uh, a great little learning tool for people who are working on team projects to watch a little fugitive if you like it. Listen to the commentary, and then say, "How can we go and do likewise?" Hey, are okay. we done, Stan? Yeah, I think so. I think we've uh, pretty much. We I think we just made two episodes in one. And if you have anything to put in the comments, it would be, what have been the most useful critiques and can you extract anything out of what some teacher gave you in a critique that made you a better artist so that we can look at it and do likewise? And by name, who gave you the worst critique of your life? No, no, no. Just, don't do just that. Just the name of the person. No, don't. No? No. Go to them. Okay. Don't triangulate. Bye, Marshall. Bye, Stan. See ya.